Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is Simon Scarrow. Simon, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. First of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm primarily known as a um, historical writer of fiction. Um, most of my books have been written about ancient Rome, although I have written about Great Siege of Malta, Wellington and Napoleon, um, and more lately, the Second World War. So I did a, a standalone a while back about the Greek resistance on the, um, the Ionian Islands. And then um, my latest book is uh, Blackout, which is set in Berlin in 1939. So I tend to range across history. Um, simply because history is where all the good stories are, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so it makes sense to sort of go where the, where the exciting stuff is. Have you not done any contemporary uh, novels at all? Well, I've done one that, which is a sort of techno thriller, which I co-wrote with one of my ex-students, Lee Francis, um, called Playing with Death, which I dare say most people have never heard of because it was appallingly marketed. Um, the publishers seem to think that uh, because you're interested in ancient Rome, you're going to be interested in virtual reality and artificial intelligence, crimes of the future. Um, and funnily enough... A natural fit. Yeah, there's, there's not much of an overlap there, as it turns out. So, um, But it, it was well received by those who had actually you know, got a chance to read it. Um, and, I, you know, it was something that Lee and I were very passionate about. Um, you know, the dangers of VR and AI, uh, particularly when you combine them. So how did you how did you get started? What was your path to uh, you know writing stories and then becoming a published author? Well, if if you want to go right back to the origins, um, it uh, it started really in the dormitory at school um, because we had this thing that every night when the lights went out, we'd all take a turn in telling a story. And one night I thought I was getting a bit tired, and um, so I thought, oh well, we'll find out what happened tomorrow night. So. Um, then after a while, I began to realize when the story was going well, because everybody would be very, very quiet. And then I realized that you could, if you ended it on a cliffhanger, you'd get to continue it the next night. So I was learning the nuts and bolts of storytelling um, very, very early on and got the job full time, actually, pretty quick. So after that, it was a case of really enjoying writing stories for homework and, and during English lessons and um you know, for that sort of thing. And then thinking, as I did, you know, as a lot of people do when they're at university, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to become a writer. And, um, of course, it's it's a bit of a uh, strange ambition, given how badly the odds are stacked against you. And there, there are loads of people who are writing, but I, I read some horrifying statistic that um, of the manuscripts that are actually submitted to publishers, it's something like less than 1% that get published. Mm. So, um, and that's, you know, those people who actually have the gumption to sit there and write the whole novel out and then submit it. Um, you know, so it, it really is quite difficult. Um, and sometimes, you know, I think you'll agree with this. It, there's a, there's a high degree to which, you know, any sort of earning an income in writing is a lottery. You know, your book has to land, land on the right agent's desk. They have to find the right editor who has to be in the right mood and they can't have been out to a party and have a hangover the night before. Um, so it's all those sorts of things. And then there are the, the factors, you know, which you totally out of your control. I was very, very lucky in 2000 when my first Roman book came out that um, two months later, Gladiator turned up on the cinema screens. So, you know, you can't, let, you can't plan for any of this. You can write and you can try to write as well as, as, as you, you know, you can. But at the end of the day, 
Um, there are things you can do to sort of improve the odds marginally in your favor, but you just have to be lucky, I think, is, is the bottom line in many cases. There is a a great amount of luck involved in any writer's success, I think, yeah. And, I, and every writer I know who's had any measure of success would say that. I don't think any of them would uh, claim that, you know, it was all down to them being a genius and that there was no good timing or a bit of luck involved. Well, unless you're a kind of zedless celebrity or um, an ex-politician or something like that. Um, yeah, well, then, you know, or journalist. <laughs> even success as a celebrity or politician often comes down to a bit of good timing and luck, doesn't it? So certainly, yeah. Um, so did you did you always want to write historical fiction, or did you come to that after having tried, you know, other types? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I had three manuscripts gathering dust in a drawer on my desk, um, which were my first three attempts at writing. So the first book was. Um, it was yeah. It was a it was a book about a bunch of students get together who come up with a new form of drug, um, and it was a comedy, and it was uh, written us in the middle of the eighties when Mrs Thatcher was prime minister, and so there was it was very sort of anti-establishment and, and um, typically teenage studenty type stuff really. Um, although I did get quite a, a bit of interest from uh, Julian Alexander at um, just just in the Alexander agents, you know this is a while back, and he was quite keen on it. Um, but it wasn't sufficiently different from Tom Stoppard that he he didn't want you know he wanted to go any <laughs> further with it. And then there was um, uh, a sort of dystopian uh, novel set in the Bahamas, um, where after a nuclear war breaks out, what happens to people who live on a sort of island that you know basically draws all its supplies from the United States, and the United States isn't there anymore. And um, so that that was the next one. And then I did a crime novel. And I think the thing that all these things have in, in common is I was trying to second-guess the market, see what was already selling, and then write my version of it, rather than doing what I did for the first Roman novel, which was very, very simple, is that I wanted to read a sort of Hornblower-type um, novel set in the Roman times. Nobody else was doing it at the time. So I thought, well, I'll write this one for me. And because I was actually kind of that passionately involved in the process, um, I think that's what made all the difference at the, at the end of the day. I mean, I've still got the three manuscripts, and someday I may run them past my agent when he's not in too humorous a mood <laughs> and um, see what he makes of them. I think, I mean, that's another thing that comes up a lot in conversations with authors, and it's true of myself as well. The, the times I've had greatest success are with the works that I have gone to hell with the market. I'm just going to write this because I want to read it. I want it to exist. Yeah. Rather than, as you say, trying to second guess what people want to read. Yeah. I think that that, that really has to be the only way. I and, mean, you know, your book will have a hell of a lot more um, authenticity. Um, and there'll be, it'll be evident that your heart's in your work than I think if you're trying to fake it. Um, but, you know, you, you know, we've both read books where obviously someone's seen a gap in the market and they've, they've plugged it with something, and you read it and you think, and you wince. I remember when Fifty Shades of Grey came out that suddenly there was, and I'm not kidding, there was a book called Seventy Shades of Blue or something <laughs> Shades of Yellow. Um, and this is the kind of thing that was going on. And, you know, publishers, you know, they, they can see that this is going to be a, a short-lived phenomenon. Pile in whilst you've got a chance. So that, you know, that's what they do. <laughs> I think there is, I mean, not to give people too much leeway, but I think there is a difference there, there isn't there? Because there's that, and, and this is way off subject, really, but there is that phenomenon where, as you say, publishers see a market building and they think, we need a book like this. And they will 
you know, ask around to see if anybody's got one. But if they haven't, sometimes they will literally commission an author, mm. find, you know, an author that they know they is reliable and trustworthy and can deliver and say, write us this book. And I think that's, I mean, it, it's quite cynical, <laughs> but it is <laughs> different to uh, the phenomenon whereby an author especially one trying to get a foothold in a market, scours the bookshelves and goes, oh, there are lots of this mm. kind of book, so I'll write something like that. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could be one of those authors, frankly, that they said, oh, right, we need next Fifty Shades of Grey. You've got three months. Here's some money. Get going. Um, but unfortunately, I take a lot of time to build up to um, <laughs> sitting down to actually write a novel. It's, it's not something I can just you know, turn on one day and suddenly be writing that sort of thing. You know, it just doesn't happen. I have to immerse myself in the world that I'm going to be writing about. Uh, plenty of research, um, thinking about the characters, thinking about the situations, making notes of any situations, you know, scenes that I particularly want um, to appear in a book, and then just seeing what happens. And then, you know, when you're in that mentally ready state where you feel you're confident enough with the material that you can begin to write about it, um, then then that's when I start. So I'd be useless in any of those kind of ad hoc commercial programs, I think. <laughs> well, so speaking of immersion and your your passion, as you said, for history that led to you starting to write those books, where did that come from? Did that develop at school as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had some amazing um, history teachers when I was at school. The, at the prep school I was at, we had a guy called uh, Mr. Cornish, who was from that generation of teachers who had fought in the Second World War. And he'd been the guy on the um, Dorsetshire who'd fired the torpedoes that had sunk the Bismarck, finally. Wow. So, you know, and, you know, he had a tale or two to tell. And um, they really got, you know, and he was passionate about his history. So he got us involved uh, from that stage. And then some of the more interesting books that were in the school library at the time were history books. There was a, some um, very basic history of medieval England, which I started reading and really enjoyed. Um, and then when I got to, um, I went, to, I was transferred to a, a grammar school in Essex and it's actually quite lovely. There was a guy there called, um, Jonathan Mills, who was our history teacher. And he, he, you know, he taught history in two different ways, depending on whether you're doing the GCSE or doing the, the A level at the GCSE level. He just knew that the key thing to get kids interested in history was teach it as a story. So he didn't sort of worry too much about looking at evidence and things like that. It was all about kind of what happened then and, you know, the motivations of characters and so on. And um, he also had this kind of thing about doing it as a serial. So he would um, say, right, and, uh, you know, Henry VIII could have married Catherine of Aragon or we shall find out tomorrow. And then, of course, we'd all pile back in the next day to find out, you know, the next episode in the ongoing soap opera that was British history. Um when we got to A level, when it was far more about um, uh, analysing the evidence, he, you know, he became a far more interesting character in a way because um, he was very critical of you know anything you came to him with and you couldn't back up your sources and, and so on. And we, he was also quite uh, adventurous in terms of the syllabus because there were a couple of um, experimental modules which he put us up for. One was Roman Britain, which worked out rather well for us. Um, and the other one was uh, a research project. So my grandfather had been uh, one of the organizers of the general strike in 1926. And um, so I went to interview him about it, and he gave me some uh, leads into uh, the leaders of the rail unions so I could have a look at their archives and go and interview them. And so I was doing history. You know, I wasn't sitting at school writing essays and stuff. I was actually going out and speaking to witnesses and comparing the evidence and, you know, coming up with an account of the, the fights that took place at Bishopsgate in London. 
So, and he was really kind of good on that. I mean, he was good at questioning the material and he was putting me in, in touch with things. And then just the other day um, on, I think it was uh, Facebook, I put some post up about uh, teachers and, you know, remembering teachers. And um, some guy came on and he said, I think my dad taught you history at school. And I saw the guy's name Mills and I thought, I said, is that you? Yeah, John Mills' uh, son. And he went, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, John Mills, the John Mills, you know. So I was completely, um, you know, over, over sort of overwhelmed by kind of gratitude and things like this. So anyway, I've, I've sent him a couple of books and wrote him a letter and he's, he's, he's written back. And it's lovely to compare notes and stuff because um, he remembers us well because my best friend Murray and I used to sort of cheek him occasionally and um, test him. So he would say, well, you know, we'd say, we've discovered something really interesting, you know, that the, the first aerial bombardment of London was carried out by Napoleon using hot air balloons. And then he would say, really? And your source for this is? <laughs> so these are the sorts of games we used to play with each other. And his son, which is really nice, remembers, because he used to sort of come with us on the field trips, he actually remembers Murray and I, because we used to sort of play with him and uh, you know, do the history stuff with him as well. So, and it's just lovely, you know, to be able to sort of thank a teacher many, many years down the line because he made a difference. You know, he really did. He fired up my passion for history. Um, and, you know, in due course, when I was a teacher, I, I've, I've done the same thing over media studies for a lot of the students that I taught. So, um, yeah, and they stay in touch. And, it, and it's lovely when you can, you know, edge someone towards a certain interest and they take it on and um, they do something with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, my history teacher at high school, unfortunately, was not that great. Uh, but my English teacher at high school was uh, excellent. And I actually did a similar thing recently. I finally managed to get back in touch with him after all these years and sent him copies of a few of my books and what have you. I'm not sure if he even remembered who I was. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I've never forgotten him because you don't forget no, those formative no. characters, do you? No. And, I, and I, you know, sometimes it's a bit embarrassing from a teaching point of view where, um, you know, you, you, somebody says, Oh, yes, you taught me such and such. And you think, and you only, the memory is only vague. But, um, you know, I had hundreds of kids go through the system yeah. and, uh, it's, it's not always possible. Some you remember, not necessarily for good reasons. But, uh. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so you did go on to teach history then. So it really has been, uh, maybe it wasn't any surprise then that it became the subject of, you know, what's turned out to be your sort of great commercial success as an author, because it sounds like it's been an integral part of your life since you were a child. Oh, yeah, the, you know, the interest in history, definitely. I mean, and when I, um, when I started out teaching, I, you know, I did a bit of history and a bit of English. Um, but actually, the thing that most interested me was media studies. Um, and a job came up and I applied for it. And that, that became the teaching career, effectively. And purely for, um, <laughs> for very utility reasons. I just uh, was so horrified by how much media we were consuming and how uh, how la you know how much lack of understanding we had in terms of how media work, in terms of creating certain sorts of readings of texts and so on, um, and I just saw it as a, a very necessary self defence thing that kids needed to to understand before they went out into the big wide world where they you know they live in a media saturated world. You know, turn the radio on in the morning, uh, see newspapers, see adverts, uh, you know, play with social media and so on. All of these things are sort of t doing things to their heads, which they had no defence over. So um, that that became, you know, and in a way, I think that's what my history writing is about is as well. You know, that um, there are versions of, um, you know, for example, Wellington, Napoleon, 
and I wanted to make sure that I wrote a you know something that was slightly a corrective to some of the views that were were going around. And it's interesting, you, you know, you think of someone like Napoleon. Um, when you go to France, there are, you know you can go into any old shop and, and souvenir shops, and a lot of them will have busts of Napoleon or you know some sort of little Napoleon memorabilia and stuff. So they have a very divided view of him. He, um, he's not like Hitler or anything like that. But there are some people in France who believe that he was. And I remember going to it's one of these small world things, um, living in the middle of Norfolk. It turns out the neighbour two doors down, um, his mother was related to Marshal Murat's family, and she lived in Norwich. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds? So I went to have tea with her, and uh, her house is stuffed to the gills with uh, Napoleonic memorabilia. Um, you know, some of it kind of real stuff from the from the era that uh, she's been left by the family. So um, we're having a lovely cup of coffee, and she's read the first book, and she was very very keen. You know, and I said, you know, perhaps you can help me with this. I, I um, I don't quite understand why in France half of them think he's you know the greatest thing since sliced baguette. And the other half seemed to think he's um, their version of Hitler. She just froze up and she looked at me and she said, Hitler, I think you'll have to go. <laughs> Kick me out of the house. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, – but I think it, this is the thing. So many historical characters you know, get commemorated in, in – you know, I mean, this is why we have this thing over the statues, isn't it? You know, a statue is – a particular vision of a, of a historical character made concrete and unquestionable. Um, and what I wanted to get away from is, is that notion of history, you know, and to come up with something that was far more dialectic and dialogic. And, um, you know, you, you, you know, someone like Napoleon, yeah, has his virtues, but he has his vices, and the same is true of Wellington. Um, I don't see history... Mm. This, this, uh, what bothers me about history is some people think, seem to think it's some sort of nostalgia crutch um, that we can look back and, oh, the British Empire, when Britain was great, we can be great again, this sort of thing. And no, you know, it's an academic discipline. I mean, there's no more sense in, you know, having a sort of history we can be proud of than being proud of what happens to a proton when it hits an electron, you know, it, in, in, a, in another discipline. So I see history is, is a very kind of functional thing um, and very much a, a sort of a situation where different kind of narratives and competing versions of history can can clash, and um, you can play those sorts of things out, uh, and that's why I think you know, I do a lot of research and think hard about it before I set pen to paper. Well, and that's the parallel with the media studies, isn't it? Really, that's you know, as you say, it's the same. Media studies is about contemporary media, but it's still about taking, as you say, a range of viewpoints uh you know information that you're presented with and going well which which of these is actually true which of these is more credible which of these is more plausible well that's it uh, absolutely i think you know historical literacy if we're going to give it a name um i think that's a very vital skill particularly you know now when uh, so much history is is being kind of very artificially rewritten to serve certain political ends um you go to germany it's a completely different kettle of fish uh uh, in Berlin, if you go to the, the museums there, they make no you know, bones about the bad stuff that's happened in German history. And they look at history very much as, a, as something you learn lessons about and try not to repeat. Um, the, the sad thing with Britain, I think, is that we tend to you know, use it as some kind of, um, ah, weren't we great? And look at all the great stuff we did. Um, and never to have questioned the mistakes that were made. And one of the, uh, I think one of the most 
amusing in, in a sad way things that happened was a few years ago. I was having lunch with Paddy Ashdown when we were talking about Afghanistan. And he was saying what, how wonderfully things were going in Afghanistan. You know, we're going to crack it. We're going to beat the Taliban, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, you know, how many times has Britain been in, you know, in, <laughs> invaded uh, Afghanistan in the past? Is it two, three times? And um, how did it end up each time? And, he's, and I said, so what's going to be different this time? And he said, well, of course, we're, you know, we're, we've learned the lesson and blah, 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 blah. And you're thinking, well, you know, clearly we haven't. <laughs> well, that's why things are not going well. And, um, and this is the danger. This is the thing. I mean, there's a lovely book that was published a few months ago by Simon Ackham called um, The Changing of the Guard about the British Army since 9-11. And, you know, it, it, this attitude about, oh, we know best – um, you know, we, we've studied history and we know what the answers are and they do the same thing that <laughs> didn't work last time. And you just sort of think, well, you know, this is the price of not learning your history. So how do you reconcile that then with not wanting to, I assume you don't want to be didactic in your fiction because you are writing fiction. Mm. It's very well researched, very thoroughly researched. And I know that you take a lot of pride in sort of getting historical details accurate, but at the same time, I assume, yeah, you're not trying to write polemics. You are writing adventure fiction. So how do you balance those, those two things? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, when you do the research and then you sit down to, to write it, one of the worst things you can possibly do is turn it into a lecture. And I've seen that happening in quite a lot of historical fiction, where you'll have two characters, two Romans sort of sitting down in the garden. And one will say, well, Decius, do you know that it's the Calends tomorrow, which means that it's the election of such and such? And the other one will go, really? You know, Claudius, is that so? And, they, and they're both senators. So um, it just, you know, <laughs> there's no hiding what the author's trying to do there. Um, so my view on that is you, this is why you have to kind of immerse yourself in the material. And then when you start writing, you leave it on one, you know, to one side and you don't basically, you trust the reader to know as much as you do about the subject. Now, I, the reason why I write that way is because, you know, if they don't know about it, then they can always go away and look something up if they're curious by themselves. If, you know, I stop to lecture them, that's precisely how it will feel, you know, so uh, I'd credit them with a degree of intelligence coming to the book each time. The other thing, of course, is, as you say, you don't want it to turn into some sort of polemic. Um, so it's about primarily about the characters. It's always about characters in, in the fiction, as far as I'm concerned. Um, quite often, you know, I was talking to a crime writer a few months back, and they were saying, oh, the characters are just there to move the plot along. And, you know, when you read the work, you can sort of see the consequence of that. Um and I think that, um, you know, the characters, you know, are really, really central to any kind of narrative. You have to care about them. You have to hate them. You have to like them. You know, you, you have to kind of uh, be amused by them. Uh, and it's no, you know, I, I suppose 20 books into Macro and Cato, I'm working on the 20th at the moment. Um, these guys are so well developed in my head that I'm, you know, little more than an amanuensis these days. Um, they talk, I type. And, uh, you know, we get through the story together. And I don't know where the story's going to go. I mean, I write a half-page uh, synopsis. And, um, you know, so I know where it's set. I know roughly who the villain is going to be and what the problem is they're going to be solved. And then, they, you know, the characters create the story from there on in. Um, that leaves you every so often. Something will happen in a story which, and this is where, you know, any, any sort of smidgen of didacticism might creep in, is if there is some sort of homology between something that's happening in the past and the present, 
then I will make, you know, I will nudge that into the foreground because I think it's a point worth making. So, for example, um, I, I was writing about a, a pandemic breaking out on Sardinia in the last Roman book. And, of course, you know, <laughs> it's a little hard not to draw the parallels. Quite relevant. You know? yeah. <laughs> Especially as, you know, the pandemic breaks out after I've started writing the novel. And I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. You know, we'll, we'll sort of see how what I'm writing about tracks with, you know, what's happening in reality and, and the lessons that can be learned from that. So, you know, there are, and again, you know, we're writing about the German book, Blackout. Um, you know, we're seeing this a sort of creeping uh, authoritarianism in, in, in our lives now that has sort of very direct parallels with what was happening in, in uh, Germany, certainly in the last years of the Weimar Republic. And then, of course, before we go into the madness, that was the Nazi Party dictatorship. Um, but a lot of what we're seeing, you know, happening now, and, and this is the thing, you know, you can you're, you can have your sort of antennae twitching about these comparisons. And a lot of people say, oh, yes, but you're, you know, oh, that will never happen again now. And you're thinking, this is exactly what they were saying in 1929, <laughs> that this was, Hitler was never going to amount to anything. Um, and you're just sort of thinking, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past certain characters in politics today, you know, to, to be, you know, be rather more influential over our lives in an, in an unpleasant way uh, over the next few years. And when it happens, people will say, what a surprising thing. And you'll say, no, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the information was already out in the open much, much earlier. And if you'd had any kind of historical literacy, you'd be smart and make those comparisons and, and act accordingly. It's much like there's a, a joke that gets rolled out, rediscovered and rolled out every few years, uh, where somebody will post an extract of uh, somebody, and I cannot remember exactly who it was, but it, it's a complaint about the youth of today. Oh, that's the that Greek one, isn't it? Yeah. You, oh, the, you know it. Yeah, I was going to say, and it's from <laughs> the classical period. I think it's Cato whinging yeah. about young people in Athens. <laughs> right, and how they have no respect for their elders, yeah. and they don't know anything about their history. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great one, that. I, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm surprised to hear that you don't write much of an outline, considering how much research you do. And do you think, is that just because you're so steeped in the research and knowledge of your subject? Yeah, I, I, it is. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it depends on what I'm writing. I would say that's, that's true of the Roman books, because I'm 20 books in, and I, you know, I packed in all the research a long time ago. And, um, you know, I read new stuff um, because I'm you know, constantly wanting to find out more about Rome. And fortunately, there's a lot of new stuff that comes out that's good. Um, but for things like, um, and you know, I'm, I'm writing about two fictional characters against real events and background of real events. So I have a, a fair degree of latitude in, in terms of what I can write about. When I was writing about Wellington Napoleon, I had absolutely the opposite problem. Um, a complete overwhelming body of evidence that you had to be very, very careful with. And, you know, occasionally I had to change things because, you know, for example, Napoleon kept sort of um, zipping backwards and forwards between France and Corsica when he was a young officer. You know, did it about a dozen times. But I couldn't include every one of those because it would just become a travelogue after a while. So what I did was I reduced it to three visits, which basically took in all the significant stuff that happened and then um, confessed to, you know, to that change in the author's note at the end. And I think that is the kind of contract that um, writers have with their readers as far as historical fiction goes, is that they trust you to get the research right. And sometimes you get it wrong. I mean, I, you know, in 20-odd books of Macro and Cato, there's one mistake I think I've made which really you know, weighs heavily on my conscience. And that was um, purely because I didn't uh, 
check the edits carefully enough because um, I, t- I tend to go through things with a fine tooth comb. And for some reason, I overlooked some Roman officer growing tomatoes in in um, Syria, which of course came from South America. Um, ah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who knew? <laughs> yeah, I have no. Yeah, but we, because especially with you know modern Italian food, you just think, well, tomatoes, surely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is what went through my head. I thought, you know, Italians, tomatoes, Italians, tomatoes. You know, <laughs> why wouldn't it be that way? Um, but I, you know, I have very much more traffic the other way when I have people correcting me about things and they're wrong. Um, so I had some person sort of saying, oh, you know, Scarrow, you idiot, before he was the Duke of Wellington, he was Arthur Wellesley. Why are you calling him Wesley, you fool? So, um, you know, then I have to sort of go back and say, actually, the family name was Wesley until their father, you know, Arthur's father died. And then the, um, his brother, Richard, who inherited the title, didn't want the family name to be confused with those people who wrote those boring hymns at the time. Um, and so he changed it to an older version of the family name, Wells, you know, Wellesley. So, um, you know, basically, get stuffed, Mr. Complaining Person. But you write the letter very nicely and say, I'm glad you you, you approached me in that way. Um, you know, thank you for this comment. But actually, if you check such and such, you will find this is the case. And you do it very politely. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's quite funny when it happens. And as I say, 99% of the time, they're wrong because I do the research. <laughs> there is an art to being a diplomat in replying to letters like that, isn't there, from yeah. readers. Uh, I do, I write cyber espionage thrillers and mm. uh, I occasionally get, yeah, you know, mail or um, social media messages from people upbraiding me on technological stuff. Yeah, that's right. Windows uh, 7.1 doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> he might have used a VPN. <laughs> I, I have the excuse that I'm I'm often writing about sort of slightly speculative technology as well. Mm. Uh, so I can sort of, I have a get out of jail free card, if you like, <laughs> mm. rather than writing about stuff that happened, you know, and he's on the, or mostly on the historical record. And that's the other thing. How much do you actually make up for yourself? Uh, do you feel constrained by the fact that you are writing around real events that happened? Or do you feel that, you know, you have enough latitude to just sort of tell whatever story you wanted to tell? Well, I think, you know, the, the, you know one of the, the, the problems with hi- history, much of history until very recently, in fact, is that um, 99% of history of people's experience of the history that happened has been written out of the record because, you know, peasants don't get to write the history books. Um, so, you know, what you have is a very, very partial record and partial archives and so on. So what, uh, historical fiction, uh, writers tend to do is if, you know, they're writing about, say, the, you know, the gunpowder plot or, or the siege of Malta or Wellington Napoleon or whatever, is, yeah, there are certain events that are reasonably well described, but only from a certain point of view. And what, you know, what's really exciting, of course, is say, well, what if, you know, somebody, you know, in that crowd who isn't part of the actual record, what would their point of view of this be and how might it be different from the established record? So, you know, that's the kind of the opening that is is there for historical fiction, um, which gives us an advantage in a, in a way that uh, uh, straight history, if you like, doesn't have because straight history has far more, uh, you know, it's far more contained within the sort of the, the way that they actually work. Um, that said, of course, you know, the thing about... Um, History, uh, as you know, we we get handed to us as, as history books and so on, is it's a, it's a fiction in its own way. Um, I mean, a history is if, if you know going to have any kind of idea about it. I mean, history is what actually happened, and then it's what historians tell us happened, and then it's what we think happened, and then it's what um, um, 
various Hollywood and television series tell us happened. And, you know, people's understanding of history is a sort of mashup of all of that sort of stuff. So, for example, you know, I'm re- I'm re- I was reading a book on the Dambuster Raid. Um, uh, <laughs> that's my current toilet reading. Um, <laughs> and, um, the, and then I watched the movie. And, of course, you know, the, it, it's a completely different version of it. But what's really, really funny is when I'm reading the kind of the authentic history of it, in my head I'm seeing Michael Redgrave and, um, you know, Richard Todd. And, yeah. you know, those sorts of scenes. So I've, I've got to kind of, you know, the cinema comes first, the cinema inflects my understanding of the actual history. Um, and even though the cinema is, is totally inaccurate in, in many respects, unfortunately, it's having a kind of um, uh, effect on, on, on massaging the history that I'm reading. So I think, you know, our understanding of history is very much a, a complicated mashup of all of that sort of stuff, whether we're writing historical fiction or whether we're writing straight history. It's interesting that you mentioned sort of writing from the perspective, perhaps, of people who aren't the ones who get to write history. Because I was going to ask that about your, because your 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 Roman novels are you're writing about. I mean, they're soldiers, they're professional soldiers, but they're not generals. They're mm. not, you know, aides to the emperor or senators or something. They are common men, um, and so I assume that gives you a fair amount of again latitude in what to write about and what perspective and where you send them because being soldiers, the books are all over Europe at that time. Um, was that again, was maybe not a conscious choice, but perhaps sort of something that you seized upon early thinking, Oh, I can go to lots of different locations because that helps keep things fresh through a long series. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, um, uh, tombstones of Roman soldiers, very often they will give a list of where they've served. So, you know, there's a, there's one they've dug up in, um, I think it's Colchester and it refers to a cavalryman who had served in Syria, in Egypt, um, Pannonia, um, before he came to Britain. So, you know, we know that these guys were sent all over the empire. Um, and that's a fair thing. Cause I mean, a lot of people say, Oh, is it, you know, realistic that Macron Cato would be sent to all these places? Well, it, it's probably not realistic, but it's certainly probable, you know, or possible. Mm. Um, and also I was just interested in the worm's eye view of the Roman Empire. You know, I, I think one of the uh, influences on, on, on me sit, setting down to do that was reading one of Lindsay Davis's novels. She writes these sort of detective novels when she's basically taken a hard-boiled Raymond Chandler kind of character and dumped him in ancient Rome. And it was a real eye-opener for me because I thought, well, that, that's the kind of thing I want to be writing, you know, and somebody's doing it and they're doing it in a very, in a very particular way. So it does feel like Raymond Chandler, you know, kind of wrote it very dry, very sarcastic and witty and, and so on. I wasn't necessarily, you know, into that, but I just thought, yeah, right, you know, worm's eye view of, of ancient Rome. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do emperors. I'm not going to do generals. I'm going to do squaddies. And, um, it's really interesting, actually, how many uh, people who serve in the army you know, read the books and, you know, they say, yeah, you know, things haven't changed. I mean, that's kind of deliberate in a way, because when I was thinking about how to represent Roman soldiers, I thought, well, you know, they're professionals, they have regimental colors, regimental traditions, they're very proud of their regiments. There were so many kind of um, homologies that suggested themselves. So I thought, well, it's, it's okay, this is what they sound like then, you know, from my experience of the OTC at university and uh, being sworn at by um, uh, sergeants and so on. Um, this is this is kind of how it goes, and I thought, well, and it, and it probably was the same in in Roman times, and I think um, that's why so many modern soldiers can identify with what's going on in in the Roman series. One of the things I always try to do, especially when I'm writing sci-fi, is get across that feeling that you know less changes than you think. 
Mm. You know, like techno- technology will change, of course. You know, political systems can change, but people and the nature of people doesn't really change all that much. Well, no, like that example you gave earlier with Plato, two thousand years ago, they were whinging about young people in precisely the same language that we do now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you travel to all these places uh, for your research? Yeah, I try to. I mean, it's not always possible, but you know, if I can go, I go. Um, and, and do you go with notebook in hand? Oh, absolutely, and camera. And because I think that sometimes, you know, you just cannot reproduce the sense of being in a place um, unless you've actually been there. You can do it, you know, you can buy your rough guides and, and, and fake it. But I think, you know, if you go to something, I mean, it's, it's, it's places you go to and something that happens there and you think, oh, this is actually quite striking. And I wasn't prepared for this. So, for example, when I went to Jordan, um, the air there is so dry, you know, and so crisp. That you can see from sort of the top of top of the uh, Wadi Araba, you can see sort of forty miles across the valley and into you know Israel, pin sharp. Now that's not something that you you get in many many locations. Right. So it's things like that, and and then of course the heat in Egypt at um, nine o'clock in the morning, and the size of the mosquitoes uh, that live on the banks of the Nile, and you know those things are huge. I can tell you. So you know these are things that um, it's very hard to actually appreciate unless you go to a place. And, and sort of make a sense, you know, what it feels like to be in that place, what the light is like, what the temperature is like, what you're hearing, what you're smelling. So you try and pick up as much of this stuff as possible, make a note of it, and then reproduce it in the books. And, I, and I, a lot of people, you know, very nicely say, you know, it feels like you're there. And I think, well, that's that, good, because that's, that's kind of the purpose of writing in that way and doing the research in that way. Sometimes it's not so easy. I mean, I was lucky um, to go and visit Palmyra uh, before all the troubles broke out, you know, and whilst it was in a cons- you know, <laughs> complete state, as it were. Um, unfortunately, ISIS have, are no respecters on, on ancient architecture and then, then blew up a lot of it uh, afterwards. And it's just a dangerous place to be now. Um, so um, I don't think, you know, it, it's possible to do the research in, in, under those circumstances. No. But, you know... Luckily, for, for the vast majority of the series, I've been able to get to, you know, Palmyra, to Jordan, to Egypt, uh, Judea, that sort of thing, um, uh, and um, other places the book have been set. And I think that's important, as if for the reasons I gave. Well, presumably that means that you have to know where you're going to set the book before you go then. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that has an interesting side effect in its own, its own way. Um, I went to... Um, the Ionian Islands to research a young adult book I was writing about a boy gladiator. And whilst I was there, I came across this reference to this Greek submarine that was operating out of the Ionian Islands during the Second World War. And I got really, really interested in that. So the chances are that if you go somewhere to research a story, actually what you'll come back with is is preparation for three different novels, you know, as well as the one that you're researching. So, um, you know, and the, the idea pile just kind of builds up up and up and up beside me on the desk. And I know I'm going to be dead before I get about a third of the way through the you know, <laughs> topics and the projects I have in mind. Uh, that's the author's curse, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. Has, have you ever had to do it in reverse? Have you ever, you know, written a book and while you're writing think, oh, actually, I need them to go to, you know, some other location that you don't, that you perhaps aren't familiar with, that you haven't visited before, and then had to go and uh, retrospectively research it, as it were. No, I mean, I, that's never happened. I mean, I, I did have a retrospective moment once when, um, when I was researching for the book I wrote about the Siege of Malta in 1565. And, um, you yeah, know, I wanted to go to 
So I managed to get through most of the fortifications and stuff, but you can't get into Fort San Angelo because the, the thing's slowly sliding into the sea. Um, and then when the book came out, uh, and it was, I had to do a promotional trip in, um, in Malta, and there was some guy there, a local reader, who happened to know the head of antiquities um, at the, um, for the Maltese government. So he was able to show me around the fortifications. And it was brilliant because everything was pretty much, I got pretty much right because I'd looked at all the, the plans and stuff and sort of hypothecated what it might have felt like and what it looked like and, um, and so on. And it, and it was pretty much spot on. So, um, <laughs> that was kind of lovely kind of retrospective justification for the, the research jumps I'd made in terms of using my imagination, which was a bit, a bit of a fluke. When you come to do a draft, did you go from start to finish? Then if you haven't got much of an outline, I assume you're probably a linear writer. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't stop. I don't stop to do any corrections or editing or anything like that. But you don't write out of order is what I mean. Oh, God, no, 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 because uh, no, absolutely not. No, because, you know, I want to know what, because I'm living the story, you know, and I want to know what happens next. Um, and uh it would it would completely blow it if I you know knew what was happening three chapters down the line and wrote that and then came back you know that, that wouldn't be so much fun to write then would it? <laughs> <laughs> See, I am a non-linear writer, which, oh, I'm, uh, I which am I know. It, it, well, I know it horrifies some other authors, so that's, that's why I always ask. Um, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known twenty years ago? Because having written so many books over so many years, your work practices must have changed. And the way you go about researching, well, maybe not researching, but certainly the way you go about applying that research to a book and writing the book itself must have evolved and developed over that time. So what do you think is so different now compared to 20 years ago? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think now, you know, it, it's it's more the publisher, really. Um, now they're prepared to let me write, you know, far more wider range of things. Initially, they said, no, just, we just want you to do Roman stuff, you know. And when I came up with Wellington and Napoleon, my editor nearly had a heart attack. And she said, no, we, you know, this is way too different. I thought, it's historical fiction. <laughs> Get a grip. Um, so that that's changed, and they're, and they're far more uh, willing to let me do different things now. So, you know, I've got a certain amount of latitude. Um, the other thing that I would say that, that's changed quite a lot is, is um, you know, I tend to do a lot of the editing in writing now. So because I kind of know, you know, how the thing works and uh, what my editor is going to say as much as anything else, you know, I can, I, I can build that into the writing process. So actually, um, you know, the first draft that gets delivered is probably about 90% of the, the, the final published version. So there isn't a huge amount of tinkering to do. If I'm doing something new, that's different. If I'm doing sort of like Wellington Napoleon or if I'm doing this, this, this series set in Germany, you know, there's, there's quite a bit more editing to do. Um, uh, but, that, you know, that, that seems to be about the, the, same, you know, the only difference. I don't think much has changed in, in terms of the process over that uh, 20 years. It's still the same <laughs> horrible process in a way. I mean, I, I kind of start the writing, get to 50,000 words and feel that, you know, this is the biggest pile of rubbish ever. What <laughs> do I think I'm doing calling myself a writer if I can't even get it, you know, better than this? And then, of course, around 65,000 words, it picks up and you think, oh, no, I can see where that's going now. And, uh, you know, as it gets to close to the end, you think, oh, absolutely. And then it's just kind of coasting downhill. But there is always that hump in every book, and it's always the same experience. And my wife, you know, knows when it's happening because I go kind of slightly morose and all the rest of it. And she, and she looks at me and she goes, 50,000 words? And I go, yeah. 
<laughs> I, I'm literally at that point in my next novel at the moment. It's it's actually for me. It's happened at sixty thousand. Oh, okay, uh, but but you know yes, what I mean though. Exactly the same. Yeah, every single book you reach mm. that point where you're like, oh, what what was I thinking? I've made a terrible mistake, mm. <laughs> and you just you know that you have to keep pushing through, and eventually, as you say, you'll start kicking downhill and you know see daylight to mix my mental. Yeah, but it's at that point you sort of say, oh, but Dad was probably right. I should have become an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think my father ever wanted me to become an accountant. Um, what is your revision process then? Do you you say you you revise? In the draft, do you mean you literally revise stuff as you're going, or do you wait until you've finished a draft first? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even as I'm writing a sentence, pretty much, you know, as I'm thinking, well, you know, would Macro would Macro say something like this, or you know, given the circumstances, would he react in this particular way? And you know, if he typed it up and I think, well, it doesn't feel quite right, then I can sort of you know change it there and then and, and make it go. You know, that goes from from that point. So. It's a lot of stuff like that, and um, if there's a sort of a direction the story could go, um, if I try and force it in a particular direction which doesn't feel kind of right for the characters, they'll very kind of quickly let me know and redirect it in the, in the right direction. So most of that's done, as I say, in the in the course of writing the first draft, um, which is a good thing because it you know saves a mountain of time, I guess. But um, uh, it's very interesting because you know I, I, I worry for these people. A lot of these people go on these creative writing MAs because um, I met someone. Yeah, you know, I think it was one of the Waterstones Prize things, and she was right, doing a creative writing MA at uh, UEA. And I said, "Well, so how's it going then?" And she said, "Well, you know, it's four years I've been writing this book, and um, you know, I managed to write two or three hundred words a day. Then I edit it the next day, and I'm thinking, well, this thing will never get written." And I think that there is a um, you, you have to kind of understand, I think, if you're going to be a, a write for a living, that means you have to get a certain number of books out. And you try and write them as well as you can, obviously. Um, but you're conscious of the fact that when they, even when they go to print, they were kind of like a work in progress. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult to reread your work afterwards. I certainly, you know, I have absolutely, you know, I've never read, read anything. I've never read, read anything as soon as it's been printed because I'll just think, no, I could have done it this way. I think that would have been better. Um, and I think, you know, that, it's that kind of difference, I think, between those of us who write to, you know, to, 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 to make a living and those of us who are sort of so driven by this idea of writing the perfect novel at a creative writing MA thing. And, and quite often the, the outcome is, you know, big words, small print, low sales. And, and really, who wants that? You know? <laughs> so do you pass your drafts on to anyone else? Uh, before they go to your editor, do you have beta readers, or does your wife read them, or something, or is it just you and your edits? My wife reads them. Yeah, um, I she's really, really good. I mean, there are two people I read who, who get to read things now. My wife is one of them. Um, she's very kind of um, focused, and she can sort of pick up on things. Um, another one is a friend of mine, German friend of mine called Peter Kramer, um, who I got to re- read through the first draft of um, Blackout. You know, because I wanted to make sure that I got the German feel of things right. Um, it turns out that Peter is one of the world's greatest editors. Um, I didn't, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Paul Willits, who also uh, has, uh, he writes nonfiction. And he said, yeah, he's been using Peter for years because he's just so good. Um, and it's true. I mean, you know, having uh, let him read through the thing, you know, and he, two days later, 12 pages of notes come back and, and you know, he's, and he's there. And they're good notes, yeah. Yeah. So but only those two people, though, really, um, because. 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Writing because you know you write the story, you get the you know the words down on paper, and you're very very touchy about the way they, that you know anybody who messes with them. It's kind of your baby, and you really care about your project, and you don't want anybody else to mess about with. Quite happy for my editor to make changes because I can you know I know her well enough now. We've been working together for twenty years, so if she says something. Um, I've I've come to trust her judgment, you know. Um, that said, what's really interesting, of course, is what happens when it goes out to the to publication, because all of a sudden the version you've got and you've got down on paper suddenly becomes, you know, as many different versions as there are readers. And, you know, to them, macro sounds like this. Cato looks like that. Britain smells like this, you know, and they've all got their, their, their unique vision. And I think this is one of the great things about writing as a medium is that, you know, we come up with a story, we try and, you know, we play it out as a cinema in our heads, you know, and then we get it down as, as accurately as we can uh, in black marks on white paper. And then those go out to the readers and then they reconstitute. I mean, it's beautiful. It's, it's better than smashed potato, isn't it, really? You know, they just add the water and then suddenly there's this uh, this new thing. But the beauty of it is that um, every, you know, reading is such a creative process. So every reader is con- is constructing a unique version of every book that they read. And, of course, that's why books are so much better than films, because, you know, with a film, all you have is the tyranny of the director's vision. There is only one way that a Harry Potter movie looks, you know, and sometimes they get it right. I mean, you know, uh, for me, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, was a far better trilogy of movies than it was book, you know, to be honest. Um I got a little bit sick of all the songs in in, in the book, um, and um, Legolas and, and Gimli with their kind of infantile competitions to see who could kill the most orcs. You know, it didn't come across well. And I tried to reread the books after, you know, having seen the films, and the films are much much better. I mean, but how 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 rarely does that happen? You know, how often is it that we go to a cinema having you know read a book and then we see the film and, we, and it's just such an unsatisfying experience. You know, it's always better to see the film and then read the book afterwards, I find. Um, but mm-hmm. the beauty of, as I say, of, of writing is that, it, you know, it, it's so, it is so creative in a way that films, computer games, anything like that really isn't. And I think, um, you know, people, one of the, the beauties, I think, of, uh, you know, the pandemic, if we can you know, say anything nice about it, is that it has allowed more people to do more reading than would you know, otherwise have been the case. And we know this because, I mean, I, I heard from my publisher that they've had, you know, last year was one of their best ever years uh, as a business. So clearly more and more people are, you know, were reading over that period. And that's a good thing. And I just hope people don't lose that habit, you know, as we come out of the pandemic and they realize, you know, kind of, hey, books, you know, I never knew they were so cool. <laughs> no, I'm absolutely right there with you. Although, funnily enough, most of the authors I know have actually read less during the pandemic. Really? Uh, I, yeah, I know, a lot, myself included. Not, I mean, I've tried to keep it up, uh, but I know quite a few authors who have really struggled to focus on reading. They've been writing okay, but they've yeah. really struggled to focus on reading while we've all been stuck indoors. Well, it's probably because we're, we're doing things like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true enough, true enough. So what do you think you're pretty good at? <laughs> okay, Um I, you know, if I'm going to um, blow my own trumpet. Yeah, put modesty aside. Okay, I think two things. It's kind of setting a scene. Um, And I wasn't really aware that I was doing this until I co-wrote this book with Lee Francis, who's one of my former students, who worked for a number of years in the film industry, and he was doing film scripts. 
So, you know, and, you know, we'd be writing, I'd write some stuff, sent him, he'd write some stuff, bring it back to me. And when I looked at all his stuff, it was kind of like, you could tell it was a film person's own, because the scene setting would be exterior, day, you know, nine o'clock. And then the dialogue would start, and the dialogue would be really, really good. But, you know, you'd have no sense of where it was actually happening. So I said to him, look, you know, Lee, you know, we have to think about this in terms of film directors, okay? Um, we have the establishing shot. You know, if it's it's a long shot of the town, you know, if it's a Western, say. And, you know, we've got the sunlight rising up out of the dusty horizon and there's a lovely orange hue across the landscape. And we can hear the squawk of, you know, these crack carrion birds in the sky. And then there's a sort of like a shuffling noise as a, we hear footprints. Close to medium shot of cowboy riding on the range and this sort of thing. So I said, um, you know, that's how you do it. You know, you have to kind of lay in the visuals before we do the dialogue. Um, or if you're going to do the dialogue, very quickly reference the visuals so we kind of sense of setting and place and so on. So two things then. I, I think it, it's about scene setting so that the scene feels real, that, you know, it feels palpable to the reader. So when they go around to, as we said earlier, reconstruct it from the black marks on the page, there are sufficient cues there that they get a real sense of the place, you know, in, the, in their imaginative space in their head when they're playing the film out against the front of their skull when they're doing the reading. Um, and the other thing I think is um, characters. Because, as I said, I think, you know, writing begins with characters because, and, and, you know, of course, that's why we read. We're interested in story. We, you know, we're interested in, in the characters we get introduced to in films and books and even, you know, some of the better computer games. Um, you know, we want to get to know what happens to them, you know, what, what it, what's happened to them in the past that makes them the way they are now, what's going on in their heads that makes them react to the person that's in front of them and the way they do. And then ultimately, what's going to happen to them as a consequence of their actions that happen now? You know, all these things keep us really rooting and, you know, for the characters and, and involved in the story. And I'm very keen, you know, that, um, when I create a character, you know, I try to make that character as three dimensional as possible. And, you know, whether you like them or hate them or find them amusing or, you know, just ridiculous, um, you know, you have to, they have to be sufficiently rounded. There's nothing that, uh, you know, I, I find kind of more puts me off when I'm reading a book. It's when a character is so clearly there to serve a narrative function to get the plot to move from A to B, you know, and <laughs> that's it, you know, and that's the, and you have no sense of them as a person beyond that function. And I think so. You know, setting the scene and making the characters credible is you know the thing I do. I'm sure other people would say, "Oh, well, I like the action sequences and whatever." But you know. <laughs> well, but conversely, what do you wish you were better at? Then? Um. Oh. Actually, I'm not that worried um, about, you know, there are things I, I don't particularly want to do anything differently. This is the thing. I don't want to, uh, you know, write a literary novel. Um, I certainly don't want to spend four years writing 120 words a day or whatever, and then it'd you know, drive me nuts. Um, so I'm not, you know, it would be, you know, I sometimes think, oh, it'd be nice to write a sort of literary uh, novel. And I think, well, no, you know, it's, it's kind of hard work and other people do it better and, and lead them to it. So, um if, I, I, I tell you, I, you know, in, if I could improve anything, it would be being a slightly more organized person. So I didn't leave things to the last minute, you know, because I tend not to start the book until I get called by my editor. And she'll say, Simon, that book you're supposed to be handing in two months time. How's it going? <laughs> uh, and that's usually my cue to get started. And then, of course, it's uh, late nights, tenant super cans and peanut butter sandwiches to sort of see me through. <laughs> Good tip, actually. Tenant Super. I, I find that the 500 mil can of Tenant Super 
um, has just enough alcohol in it to slow my brain down to my typing speed. I must say, that's absolutely not a tip that I expected to hear from you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's the last thing you read where the writing really impressed you and why? Oh, what? I I haven't got it on me at the moment. But um, it's um, a graphic novel, actually, called Berlin. Um, And it's... uh, Oh, yes. Jason Klutz. Yes, yes. You know it then. Oh, awesome. It's very, it's very well known in the field of graphic novels, yes. Ah, okay, okay. Well, you see, I didn't know this. I just saw it on the, uh, when I went into, you know, that great moment recently when I was able to go back into Waterstones for the first time in months. So I came away of a couple of hundred pounds worth of books in various bags and stuff, and that was one of them. And uh, um, it was, you know, one of the more expensive books I've bought. But, uh, you know, I thought Berlin covers the sort of period I'm interested in. Um, and then I didn't realize until after I'd sort of bought it that it has this kind of reputation in the, in the field. But I, I just love the sort of, you know, huge range of characters uh, and the sort of slipping in and out of people like Goebbels and Hitler and so on. Very, very, you know, uh, so on. And it just felt like, um, and it's beautifully drawn. It's really moving. Um, it's finely written. I mean, everything that you'd want in, a, in, a, in any kind of storytelling is, is there in, in Berlin. Mm. Oh, part part of the reason for its infamy, apart from its quality, is also that it took him something like fifteen years. Well, I'm not surprised. So you look at the complete, quality yeah. of the illustration. I mean, you know, I'm only two thirds of the way through, and I think it's four hundred and something pages. You know, so it's a, it's a huge work. That's for sure. It really is. Yeah, yeah but, but yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, worth every job. every minute. I mean, you know, it, I'm just sort of savoring the moments as I'm turning the pages, and we come back to a character we haven't seen for a couple of pages, and you want to know how catch up with them. So you know, it feels like one of those kind of Dickens novels, really. Um, you know, set in Berlin at that pivotal moment between the sort of the end of the the Weimar Republic and the beginning of you know the end, as it were. Right. Yeah. Well, and I can see obviously from your perspective as a historian why that in particular mm. would interest you. Yeah. So, Simon, where can people find you online? Um, well, I have a you know, Facebook page and a, you know, Twitter feed and stuff. Um, and I'm trying to get better at Twitter. I just struggle trying to um, boil anything down to whatever the number of words you're allowed is, uh, letters. And what's your Twitter handle? Is it just is it just your name, Simon Scarrow? Yeah, yeah I think it's just Simon Scarrow. Um, you know, I don't have any grander title than that, really. So, um, <laughs> but uh, same with Facebook. And, uh, you know, we all, the other thing we, we do that people, you know, I'm trying to encourage more authors to do this, actually, is we have an online bookshop. Um, so it's simonscarrowshop.com. But uh, what we do with the – every time we have a new book out in hardback, we get 25 of these things printed especially by the publisher called Collector's Edition. And then we sell those at uh, an auction uh, via the shop and, the, and Facebook page. And um, that money goes to support a hospital in Africa. And people are really, really generous. You know, They're paying sort of around £200 a book. Um, and it's a great way you know, that uh, authors can actually put something back in there's a, you know, the, the only work you're going to be doing is, you know, packaging up the thing and posting it and getting Hermes to pick it up from you. Um, but, you know, you can have a, a pretty huge impact um, with a minimum of effort. And it's just nice to put something, you know, back that way, really. Yeah, what a lovely idea. Um, what work of yours would you recommend 
that our listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you before? Gosh, um, well, if if they're into Roman history, then they've got a price <laughs> of 20 books. <laughs> and I think any one of those, because they're all kind of freestanding, even though there's a sort of story, you know, a career to follow, each one of those is a separate venture. So it have oh, so problem. you could just pick up book number 10 and, oh, and God, yeah, not yeah. be horribly lost. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you have to write it that way because, you know, it's just a complete disservice to anybody that does pick up book 10 and suddenly they need to be read everything else. Um, the other one, I, you know, I would, I would, I hesitate to recommend it because it's really, really graphic and unpleasant and, and quite dark. Um, but I'm very, very proud of it is, is playing with death, my, uh, techno thriller book. Um, cause I think, you know, we wrote this three, three and a half, four years ago. The idea for it originally was about 20 or 30 years ago and everything that we put in it, you know, has come true. And it's um, oh wow, <laughs> it's spooky. <laughs> it's both, both a good and terrible feeling, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, we <laughs> we kind of had big hopes for it because it was it was going straight to the heart of you know a lot of stuff that's happening in social media. And um, you know, as I say, unfortunately, the, the publisher thought it would be very easy to market as a Roman book. <laughs> hey ho, <laughs> Simon! Thank you so much for coming on the show. Ah, you're welcome. It's been a great time. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that's also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe, and I'll see you next time. Well, so, <laughs> first <blip>. morning, good <laughs> afternoon, whatever it is. <laughs> so I get up late. <laughs> <laughs>